Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 23 of The Checkup. I'm Sam Pillay, one of the health law principals in BN's Brisbane office, and I'm joined today by Lisa Fairley, senior associate who also specialises in health law. Hi, Lisa. Hey, Sam. So today's topic is a sad one, and we do advise some listener discretion. We're going to be looking at some of the more challenging decisions that courts are asked to make when courts are asked to turn off the life support. Sam, I heard you recently made your radio debut with Damien Carrick on The Law Report and you discussed the Archie Battersby case. I did and we only talked about Archie Battersby because it was breaking news and that um, was all we had time to talk about. But today, Lisa, you and I have the luxury of time, some mega coffees, and we can take a deeper dive into this area of the law examine some similar cases and look at what the courts take into account when they're making these types of decisions. But first up, let's do a quick overview of the recent Batterspeed decisions. Lisa, you went deep into this case, trawling through all of the judgments. There was six or seven, I think, in total from the various courts. Would you like to give our listeners a quick recap of the Archie Battersby story? Sure. So I'm sure many of you would have heard this very sad story play out in the media, but it involved little Archie and on the 7th of April 2022 his mother found him unconscious and unresponsive with a ligature around his neck. It was believed that he was participating in uh, a popular TikTok challenge at the time and it had gone horribly wrong. He suffered a out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and he ultimately was deprived of oxygen for around 40 minutes. So he was taken directly to Southend Hospital Uh, And then on the 8th of April, so the next day, he was transferred to the Specialist Paediatric Intensive Care Unit at the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel. There was a CT head and angiogram, MRI, MR angiogram and an EEG investigation, which they all showed catastrophic hypoxic ischemic brain injury. So Archie was unanimously considered by his treating clinicians to have no prospect of recovery, and they recommended withdrawal of his life support. They suggested that he undergo a nationally approved test for brainstem death, but his family had reservations about this, which revolved mostly around one of the steps of the test, which was an apnea test, Um, and this involved Archie being taken off the ventilator for a period of time, and they were worried about the impact of that on Archie. So what does brainstem death actually mean? So the NHS website helpfully describes it and it says that brain death or brainstem death is where a person is on artificial life support but no longer has any brain functions. So a person whose brain dead is legally confirmed as dead according to the UK law, that person has already died. So when Archie's parents didn't provide consent for this test to go ahead, Bart's Health NHS Trust, which is the trust that operates that particular hospital, went to the court to seek an order that Archie undergo that brainstem testing. 
there was a little bit of issue around that because the brainstem testing ultimately couldn't be carried out. So there was a subsequent application made to authorise an MRI scan where clinicians were able to look into whether that also demonstrated brain death. So the MRI showed significant brain damage and the High Court was then asked to consider whether Archie's life support treatment should continue. On the 13th of June, the hospital NHS Trust applied for, firstly, a declaration that Archie was brain stem dead, and that was on the basis of that MRI because the brain stem testing couldn't go ahead. And secondly, in the alternative, an order regarding whether it was lawful and in Archie's best interest to continue to receive mechanical ventilation. And the judge um, that heard that decision actually went out to the hospital and visited Archie before making the decision. She did. She went out and visited Archie and she ultimately held that Archie was brain dead at that time of the um, MRI and she gave permission to the medical professionals at Royal London Hospital to cease administration of mechanical life support and medication, which included an order not for resus. The family successfully appealed uh, this decision to the Court of Appeal and that Court of Appeal found that the lower court was wrong to declare brainstem death in the absence of conclusive brainstem testing. And they sent the matter back to the High Court for a new hearing to determine whether ongoing life support treatment was in Archie's best interests. So then on 15 July, Justice Hayden in the High Court ruled that life support treatment should end and he held that continuing it was futile and not in Archie's best interests. The family then appealed this again to the Court of Appeal, Supreme Court and the European Court of Human Rights. They also asked United Nations to intervene. All the appeals were unsuccessful and ultimately Justice Hayden's original best interest decision stood. That was that the continuation of the life-sustaining treatment was not in Archie's best interests. On 6th of August, Archie passed away at Royal London Hospital after treatment was withdrawn with family at his bedside. I thought Justice Hayden's judgment was interesting um, generally, um, a really interesting judgment, very compassionate and um, gave a real account of Archie's life and his personality. Um, it's also interesting how he described or regarded the life support treatment and Justice Hayden described it as futile and said, it serves only to protract his death whilst being unable to prolong his life, which I thought was an interesting distinction because we think about life sustaining a life prolonging treatment, but Justice Hayden, when looking at the treatment involved, said it was really just protracting the death. So how, Lisa, did Justice Hayden decide what to do here? Sam, I also found um, the judgment quite eloquently written. It definitely gave this really in-depth overview of Archie's life and to the best of the judge's ability, what decisions he perhaps would have made if he was conscious to make them. So he, Justice Hayden looked through um, various aspects to determine best interests. One of the ones that he focused on quite a lot was obviously the medical evidence as a whole and analysed its significance in the context of overall best interests. So his honour noted that almost every aspect of Archie's bodily function was being maintained artificially through ventilatory support, chemical assistance and physical care, which was provided by the nurses. 
And from memory, he listed almost, I think it was about 17 medical interventions which were required just to keep Archie's body alive. But he noted that this was not just a medical issue and he also looked into Archie's life prior to the accident, including his lively personality, um, the strong bond he had with his mother and his brother, as well as his religious beliefs and the conversations that he had had with his brother about his wishes to the extent that was possible given Archie's age at the time. His honour ultimately placed considerable weight on the importance of protecting Archie's dignity and considering whether it was in his best interest to continue ventilation, as well as having regard to his needs and wishes. Ultimately, Justice Hayden held that the treatment was futile. So there are a number of similar cases coming out of the UK over the years. One of the most famous ones was the little baby Charlie Gard a few years ago now. Charlie Gard was around eight months old and he was diagnosed with a horrendous condition um, known as MDDS, a mitochondrial condition, which effectively meant that he was um, severely disabled, paralysed and deaf, and he was unable to breathe without support. So his prognosis was very poor. Um, Charlie's parents wanted to transport him to the US for some experimental treatment, but the clinical team thought that the treatment would be potentially painful and futile. So the hospital asked the court for orders to permit it to withdraw the uh, ventilation and provide palliative care to little Charlie. The court accepted the medical evidence here and ordered that treatment may be withdrawn. Charlie's parents also appealed this decision to the Court of Appeal, Hugh Supreme Court and ultimately the European Court of Human Rights, but were unsuccessful in each of these appeals. However, in July 2017, some new evidence emerged about possible benefits of treatment, so the hospital actually reopened the case. But by that time, Charlie's condition had deteriorated, so some MRI scans that showed that Charlie had little or no muscle in some parts of his body. By that time, the parents had accepted that further treatment was unlikely to assist Charlie and was in his best interest to enable him to pass away. So another case that probably needs a mention because it was also very publicly played out in the UK was the one of Rajib and Bart's NHS Foundation Trust. So the court actually took a bit of a different approach in this case. It involved little five-year-old Tafida and she had suffered irreversible brain damage. She had minimal, if any, consciousness and was supported in hospital on artificial ventilation. Her doctors considered that if she was to survive, she would have profound disability, be on a ventilator and require permanent intensive care. The clinical team recommended palliative care only. However, Tafida's parents wanted her to be transferred to a paediatric hospital in Italy. So it came before the court and the court took into account many aspects in considering best interests for Tafida. And one of the things that was quite prominent in that case was Tafida's religious and cultural heritage and that she was developing her own religious identity. There was evidence put forward that Tafida was unlikely to feel pain, was medically stable, and that the burden of treatment on her was low and that she was able to travel with minimal risk. Ultimately, the court in that case held that it was in Tafida's best interest for life-sustaining treatment to continue and for her to be transferred to a hospital in Italy. Interestingly, I just had a quick look as to how Tafida was going and there was an article from March of this year, 2022, and Tafida is still alive. She's still in Italy receiving treatment. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. So Tafita's case is almost, um, I guess it sort of stands out in this these body of cases. There are a mm. few other cases in the UK sort of around similar times. There was little toddler Alfie Evans whose family also appealed up to the European Court of Human Rights. There was baby Isaiah who was born with cerebral palsy following a problematic birth at the hospital. And then there was also two-year-old Alta Fixler whose parents um, were Orthodox Jews and they wanted to take her to either the US or Israel where hospitals had offered to care for her. But in all of those cases, the courts in the UK ruled that it was not in the child's best interests to continue life-sustaining treatment. So turning to Australia, there have also been several Australian cases over the years and there are some general themes running through these cases um, being, generally speaking, it's not in a person's best interest to receive treatment that is futile. And when the courts decide what is in a person's best interest, they'll consider firstly the extent to which the treatment is burdensome or intrusive and we'll also consider whether it would be causing the person unwarranted pain or indignity. So what's some cases in Australia, Lisa? So uh, one that really sticks out to me is the Hospital and S, A minor, which is a New South Wales Supreme Court case from 2019. This, again, was a little three-year-old boy. He was struck by a motor vehicle and suffered a traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury as a result. He was ventilator dependent and considered to be also quadriplegic. He was mechanically ventilated and he was receiving artificial hydration and nutrition and he was in an unresponsive state. So the consensus among S's doctors was that he had no conscious awareness and that he was unlikely to ever achieve awareness. They also considered that prolonging his life was inconsistent with his personal dignity and that continuing the treatment would be unethical. So this was where the application again was brought by the hospital and they were seeking an order to withdraw life-sustaining treatment from S and commence palliative care. S's parents opposed. Ultimately, the New South Wales Supreme Court ordered that S's life-sustaining treatment be removed and that palliative care commenced. The court was persuaded by the medical opinion and it remarked that stopping S's treatment was justified due to the possibility he may be suffering pain and discomfort and he could suffer further ailments if life-sustaining treatment continued. The court also noted, in the absence of any possibility of conscious existence, the dignity of the person is a real and significant factor which the court should protect in considering the person's best interests. So we see this um, move, I guess, towards considering a person's inherent human rights, and we're seeing this come out a bit in the more recent cases, Sam. Absolutely. I think that last point's really interesting. So even if there's no pain or awareness, the courts consider protecting somebody's dignity to be in their best interests. And going back historically in the UK, there's been some debate in the literature around this. So there's a, a, a group of cases historically known as the PVS cases, which are basically um, cases involving patients in a persistent vegetative state. And the commentary was along the lines of if someone doesn't have any awareness, can we really say it's in their best interests or not in their best interests for them to be kept alive? And the concepts of uh, protecting dignity is, I think, an answer to this question. It's also interesting in S's case, a quote by the court who said, the right to receive medical treatment is not equivalent to a right to the perpetuation of life irrespective of the circumstances. 
It may not be in the best interest of the patient to be given medical treatment that's excessively burdensome, intrusive or futile. So we see that theme, theme coming yeah, through again and again. That's quite similar to, uh, I guess, the decision or the way the decision was worded in Archie's case. Yeah. And another Australian case in 2012, again in New South Wales, was baby Muhammad and he had a fatal metabolic disorder and he only had weeks or months left to live, but his parents wanted him to continue to be mechanically ventilated and came before the court and the court said, here the risks of ventilation outweigh the benefits and in particular for Muhammad there was evidence that inserting the catheter and regularly suctioning in a baby that small could cause pain and discomfort so the court ruled it was not in Muhammad's best interests to ventilate him. I find this topic so interesting because it's really where the law and medicine meet and the law often doesn't really intervene in clinical decisions unless of course we discuss law of tort and actions for damages and negligence but that's after the fact, and it's quite different to what we're discussing today. And I guess also because the law is quite firm on the precedent that a doctor cannot be compelled to provide futile treatment. So what's happening here? How did we end up in such a publicly fought and emotional and legal battle on something that from the outside seems to be quite clear-cut in medicine with regards to futility and also with the law? Well, it's true that what the hospital is seeking to do in these cases regarding withdrawal of futile treatment is legal, but there can be quite a grey area around futility, which I think we'll have a chat about in a minute. But where does this body of law come from? One of the cases that's often cited as being a leading case here goes back around 30 years to the Hillsborough Stadium disaster where the football stadium collapsed, resulting in many injuries. And 17-year-old Anthony Bland was at that football game and he was severely injured, um, such that his brain was deprived of oxygen. And he suffered a permanent catastrophic brain injury, so he could not see, hear or feel anything, couldn't communicate and didn't have any cognitive function. However, his heart kept beating and he was able to breathe and undertake digestion unaided. So Anthony was kept alive by artificial nutrition and hydration for over three years, which is quite a long time. So Lisa, you and I had a case recently that was similar in the sense that once the hospital was eventually authorised to remove the life support, the patient started to breathe on her own and we understand she's still alive today. Um, So with Anthony, the hospital and the family actually jointly took the matter to the court and approached the court asking for declarations that the ongoing treatment, that's the artificial nutrition and hydration cease, Um, other than treatment needed to make him comfortable. So effectively palliative treatment. And this was where the family agreed with the hospital, wasn't it? Exactly. So the family and hospital were completely in agreement, but they were concerned about the effect of withdrawing the the nutrition and hydration because if the declarations were granted, everyone knew it would kill Anthony. And without doing that, he could effectively stay alive on his own. So it came before the court and the court considered the best interests and said a doctor only owes a duty to provide treatment to a patient if it is in his or her best interests and treatment that is futile cannot be in a patient's best interests. So doctors do not have a duty to provide that treatment. In those cases, withholding and withdrawing treatment is lawful. So that's been cited as one of the leading cases here and what the courts come back to um, in the common law when dealing with treatment that is medically futile. And the court said it's not appropriate to prolong a person's life where the treatment has no therapeutic purpose, such as where a person is unconscious and has no chance of improving in the case of Anthony. So I guess this requires us just to have a a look into what futile treatment actually means and who makes this decision. 
So futile treatment is not formally defined in the law and there is debate in the medical and legal professions about what futile or non-beneficial treatment means. So the term is commonly used to refer to treatment which is not in the best interests of the person, which cannot achieve its purpose or which is not clinically indicated. So it's very much a clinical decision, uh, not a legal decision, but when it's considered by the courts, it goes into this best interests legal framework. So who decides whether treatment is futile or non-beneficial? Generally, this is the treating clinical team or a medical practitioner, and it's on a case-by-case basis, and often second opinions um, become really important in these cases. So factors that will be considered include the person's diagnosis and prognosis, the person's treatment goals, and whether these can be achieved, treatment alternatives, and risks and benefits of these alternatives. It's important for clinicians to discuss this with the person or the person's substitute decision maker. I think what we see in most cases is that there's a meeting of minds and the decision maker and the patient um, with the patient's conscious and the clinical team are all on the same page, but sometimes there is not agreement. So what can families or patients do if they disagree with the doctors about whether treatment is futile or non-beneficial? So hospitals and health services generally have their own dispute resolution processes um, in the first instance, and families can challenge um, decisions from the treating team by seeking a second opinion. And in our experience, hospitals are very accommodating and will often seek second opinions, third opinions if the families want them. If it gets to the stage where the dispute cannot be resolved, a Supreme Court or family court or a state tribunal may decide whether the treatment should be provided. But that leads into the question of whether a patient or the family of a patient can demand that treatment be given even where the medical team believe that the treatment would be futile or wouldn't be any benefit. And under the common law, the answer is no. A person cannot demand treatment that is futile or is not going to be beneficial to them. Um, And this is also the case where a person does not have capacity. So, for example, in an advanced care directive, a person cannot state a requirement that futile treatment be given. And also, generally speaking, a person's substitute decision maker cannot demand such treatment. And I say generally because it's the case everywhere except for certain situations in Queensland for adult patients. Yes, so in Queensland, it sits out against the rest of the states and territories um, because of a provision in the Guardianship Act, which says that if an adult lacks capacity, consent must be obtained from the person's substitute decision maker before treatment can be withheld or withdrawn. And this is the case even if that treatment is futile or non-beneficial and is needed to keep the person alive. So it really goes against the general theme of these cases that we've discussed and the position that clinicians have with being forced to continue futile treatment. So in Queensland, and we're just talking adults here without capacity under the legislation, in Queensland, if a health practitioner withholds or withdraws futile treatment from a person with impaired capacity without the consent, they're actually guilty of an offence under the legislation um, unless they then go to the public guardian or the relevant tribunal to obtain authorisation. So Sam, is it basically the case that with all these other decisions that we've discussed today, the decision that the hospital has wanted to make is ultimately a lawful decision and they could have made that decision in any event because the treatment was considered futile. But because there wasn't that consent, they went to the court 
for a declaration, I guess, for protective purposes. But in Queensland, for an adult, if that consent isn't there and it's unable to be obtained, then a clinician really does have to or a hospital really does have to go to a tribunal or the public guardian to have that decision be made legal. That's right. Otherwise, it's unlawful and they can be guilty of an offence. But other than that specific Queensland exception, the situation is, I guess, really clear that the determinative issue is the patient's best interests. And this is, in Australia, decided by the relevant Supreme Courts or it can be also the family court in the case of children. So what do the courts actually look at when um, making these types of decisions and considering what is in a patient's best interests? And we've seen um, from the decisions we've talked about today a number of common themes. The courts take into account not just the medical interests but the social, cultural and religious factors. They look at the likelihood that treatment will work or will help Um, and the medical opinion about the diagnosis, the prognosis, and the treatment that's required. And the courts do a balancing exercise weighing up the benefits versus the burdens of treatment and look at um, will the treatment potentially cause pain, like in the case of baby Muhammad and also Charlie Gard, or if the patient's not aware, will it potentially compromise their dignity? And we saw this being discussed in Archie's case and also some of the other cases. So the parents, um, the family's view, the patient's views, if they're known, are things that are taken into account and they're thrown into the mix um, as one of these factors when considering the best interest, but they're not determinative and they're not the um, end answer. I think another point just worth mentioning is that what's not taken into account is the interests of others, such as the wider health system and resourcing. And this is obviously quite a topical issue in recent times with the burden on our health system. Yes, very topical. And the courts also look at um, the process undertaken by the clinicians in reaching the conclusion that treatment is futile. So if we're coming before a court or a tribunal and asking them to make declarations regarding the patient's best interest, we have to come armed with a lot of evidence and there has to be sort of a comprehensive gathering of all this information before you get to the court. So the court will want to see evidence of um, second opinions, third opinions if appropriate, um, the relevant clinical guidelines that might apply and how the, the team has complied with these guidelines. And they want to see evidence that the clinical team has engaged with the patient or their substitute decision makers, and that's through family meetings, um, through engaging social work, sometimes um, cultural support or cultural liaison or interpreters um, when there's another language or culture involved. So I guess a lot goes on behind the scenes before you end up in a case like Archie Battersby where it's a very publicly fought and quite emotionally run sort of matter. I guess the question that's been posed in the media um, and maybe is also being considered by clinicians is whether there is another way, whether there is a way to, to get around these publicly fought battles. Archie's parents have petitioned for an inquiry and are advocating for law reform. But really, the reality is decisions like this around withdrawal of futile treatment are occurring all the time in hospitals around the country, day in and day out. It's a deeply human decision, one that is usually made in agreement between clinicians and patients and their carers who tend to agree on what is the person's best interest. And where a patient or carer doesn't initially agree with clinicians as to futility, 
like you said, effective communication and education more often than not does overcome these hurdles. So it's certainly the very tip of the iceberg that end up before the courts in such a public battle like Archie Battersby. Modern medicine has meant that there are now decisions to be made and therefore opportunities for disagreement where perhaps in an earlier time that would not be possible, there would be no decision to be made. It would simply be made for us. It is possible now to keep a person technically alive on life support for days and months and sometimes even years. However, the law is firm in its position that it's not lawful to continue medical treatment which is not in a person's best interests. The medicine agrees. It derives from its very backbone to do no harm. So as eloquently stated by Justice Hayden in one of the decisions in respect to Archie, developments in modern medicine and the ability to sustain life is a remarkable medical achievement, but the moral and ethical challenges it creates are obvious. But perhaps the change is closer to home. We cannot look to medicine or the law to solve this one for us. It cannot possibly offer an easy or efficient solution for everyone when deeply personal decisions such as withdrawal of life support are processed so differently by so many. Thanks, Lisa, and I think that's a good place to leave today's episode. So thank you for tuning into the checkup. We have links to the cases that we've mentioned in our episode notes. And we welcome any feedback you might have or health topics you would like to know more about. Just head to bnlaw.com.au to get in touch. And please let us know if you'd like to be involved in the checkup. Chat soon. <laughs>